Once a semester, a group of Fordham students are chosen to learn how to create and share impactful, powerful stories about their lives. Think TED Talk with candid reflections of emotion. Our story at Fordham University falls under Fordham's Social Innovation Collaboratory. It's an action-based network designed to use creativity and critical thinking to address some of the world's problems and needs. Good morning. I'm Robin Shannon, and on today's Fordham Conversations, I'm joined by Rosie McCormick, an original member of the Our Story team, Sally Brander, an Our Story mentor, and Carrie Weiss, the director of the Fordham Social Innovation Collaboratory. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Tell me, how did our story get started? Well, we had a senior at Fordham who has now graduated, Amanda Vopat, and she went to a conference called Ashoka U, which is a network of changemaker universities, businesses that all come together. And she saw a woman from University of San Diego present something called My Story, which is what our story was modeled after. It was people sharing stories about their lives that were deeply personal and probably something you wouldn't know about someone if you just knew them casually as an acquaintance. And Amanda saw this and another Fordham student told a story at this event and she was so shocked by how connected she felt to this person afterwards. She said, I have to bring this to Fordham. And she went to Carrie and she found me and a couple of other people to join the team and it's just grown from there. Sally, when did you first hear about our story? Um, I found out through our story actually through an email. So a friend of mine was on the United Student Government and they had heard about it, the program coming to campus. So she had actually nominated me to be a storyteller during the first cycle. So I got to see our story in its, I guess, like original iteration when it was first being brought to campus. So I had the opportunity both to work with the original Our Story team on what the event would look like at Fordham and see it in its initial stages and then have my input, but then also take things from the event. So I saw that community building aspect and I saw its worth as a very important, I'd say, like social impact event on campus. And Carrie, was that one of the reasons why you thought it might be a good program to start? Yes, absolutely. We've had a diversity, equity, and inclusion roundtable of students meeting for about a year now. And this fits so nicely in with that theme, creating community, creating connectivity, and really understanding people deeply uh, through these connections. And so when I saw how excited the students were, and I also attended the the sample session that was offered at this conference where the University of San Diego demonstrated what this was about. I got as excited as they did, and we put our heads together to figure out how to bring this program to Fordham and then eventually how to customize it for our unique culture and the needs of our students. Have there been any changes from the original concept of our story to how it is now? Oh, absolutely. We are constantly evolving. Um, from the first cycle, we were really focused on, you know, handpicking people, maybe what we thought diversity looked like. And we as a team have learned so much through hearing the storytellers talk that diversity isn't just something on the surface. You can't craft stories that way. You have to build trust and ask people to come forward as their whole self. When we send out applications now, all we ask is what's your name and what's your story to tell? And we found that that really gives people the freedom to really dive in and express themselves. And that's just one evolution out of many that we continue to work on as a team. And Rosie, what are some of the topics that people have presented to you for stories? You know, people have talked about a wide range of topics. People tend to be drawn to sharing deeply personal events in their lives, sometimes even traumatic events, just because they have such an impact on who you are as a person. Um, we've had people talk about losing family members or parents, um, about sexual violence, or sometimes even just more casual stories about their time at Fordham or 
any other instance of just being isolated as a college student and learning to deal with that, learning to deal with loving yourself. It really covers any wide range of topics you could imagine. Are there any topics that you have said, nah, that doesn't really work? I don't think we have. I think when we select storytellers, the main thing we're concerned about is making sure that they feel supported and safe. So at times we will turn down people who will maybe say, oh, you know, my dog just passed away yesterday and I'm really upset about it. We'll say, I don't think you're ready to talk about this yet. It's probably still really upsetting. So while we want to build this community building aspect, we're really also trying to make sure that we're not having people just focus on trauma and voyeuristically looking into other people's lives. We want both storytellers and story listeners to feel supported in the process of sharing and listening to stories. Both Rosie and Sally, what about our story at Fordham University made you want to go beyond just sharing your own personal stories and take on leadership roles? So for me, it was that I got so much out of being a storyteller and being able to have input and being able to interact with other people in the team that to then move forward and be a mentor was just another part of me being a active member of this community and of sharing something that I think I need to share or is valuable to share. So what Rosie was talking about uh, with like voyeuristic experiences or just like not wanting to, I guess, like create a platform for stories that people aren't yet comfortable sharing, that was something that was really important to me is moving away from this idea of spectacle and instead leaning into empathy and vulnerability, but then still keeping in mind the importance of permission and grace. How about you, Rosie? I actually kind of went the reverse route. I was on the team before I had ever told a story, and I was the youngest member of the Our Story team when we had our first event. And I remember leaving that night after hearing all the stories, and I went and I sat on Edward's parade by myself, and I just had this overwhelming sense of emotion and what have we done here? What have we created? And I think after that, I was hooked. I just, all I wanted to do was talk about storytelling with my team members. And then out of working on the initiative as a whole, I actually ended up having the opportunity to tell stories. For example, a dean in the business school said for her freshman business class, she wanted to talk about diversity and empathy building. And she said, could you share a story from your life? So I've almost had the storytelling opportunities spring up from the initiative rather than the other way around. But it's it's been great. <laughs> and there's a teaching aspect to our story. Uh, meaning that it's not just, you know, all of four of us kind of sitting at the cafeterias, you know, chatting about experiences. There's actually a teaching part of it where you help bring out the best way to tell these stories. So can you walk me through that? Okay, I come to you and I'm like, hey, I'm kind of interested in telling a story about my parents growing up or something along the lines. How would you walk me through the process of like, this is what you need to do, this is what you need to know, and this is where we plan to take you? So as the director, we were concerned about that teaching aspect of this, and having not done it before, this was a new initiative, we hired the student who had then graduated from the University of San Diego to come to Fordham and to coach us and to build out this program. And since then, we have also found faculty at the university who have become very engaged with us. Uh, right now, we have four who are really looking to build this out in, towards curriculum. So it's been an all-out, uh, multi-generational approach in the end. But I think I'll turn it over to Rosie and Sally to just talk about the, the teaching of how to mentor this, because they experienced that firsthand. Yeah, I would say we've really worked on our process evolving. We initially started by having 
um, storytellers write out their story like an essay when Sally was a storyteller. That's the format we followed. And over time, we realized that this really took away from the event because holding a paper is a security blanket, but it often didn't give you the freedom to really just tell a story like you were sitting around with your friends, which is what we wanted it to be like. So we actually started trying to walk people through just telling something, but it's really hard to ask someone to talk about something very personal just offhand, casually, because your thoughts are scattered. So we worked with a couple professors, and uh, after they gave us some of their insights, we decided to follow a process that we have deemed the associative journey. So often, if so, if you came to me and said, I want to talk about my relationship with my parents, my first question would be, okay, well, what's a time you felt really connected with your parents? And then you would say something in I would listen and I'd say, well, what I'm hearing you say is, you know, this time you felt really connected with your dad, but you felt like maybe your mom was more distant. Can you tell me about another time you felt like you were distant from your mom? And as a mentor, you begin to try to lead people through their stories, but it's a very delicate balance between putting your own stories on someone else and trying to not push them in a certain direction, but trying to invite them to look through their own memories and eventually get to a point where they have done what we call closed the loop. And they come to the end of a memory and they say, oh, yes, this all connects. This makes sense. This is a story I want to tell. So at any point, do they write these these ideas, these stories down? It, we kind of leave it up to the storyteller. We have tried to encourage people to maybe write down like bullet points or just like a couple lines in a journal so that you don't completely freeze up. But we ran this fully the first time at this fall 2018 event asking storytellers to not read off of what they had written. And all the storytellers, to their credit, did an incredible job. Some of them didn't look at any pieces of paper at all. Some just flipped through journal entries. And I think, I mean, Carrie, maybe you can speak to this, but I think as an audience member, it was so much more fruitful to listen to because you felt more connected with people. And I'm sure it was more intimidating for the storytellers, but it was definitely um, better for the community building aspect. Yeah, I could really see the difference in this last, the third of our events. Without reading it, they're making more eye contact with the audience. They're getting more feedback from the audience's demeanor as the audience is taking in their story and probably shifting what they're saying in response to what they see happening in the audience. And so the connectivity, which was so high before, got even higher and even better. And I think, you know, as proof positive, there were many people left in the room even two hours after the event was over. People just lingered. We provided food so that they could linger, and they just want to keep talking to one another. And it was such a wonderful feeling. And we also had people sitting on the floors. We exceeded the seats. And so that in itself gives it a great sense of community. This is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. I'm Robin Shannon talking with Rosie McCormick and Sally Brander. They're members of the Our Story at Fordham University, a group that learns how to create and share impactful stories about their lives. I'm also joined by Carrie Weiss. She's the director of the Fordham Social Innovation Collaboratory, an action-based network designed to use creativity and critical thinking to address some of the world's problems and needs. So Sally, as the mentor, it sounds like you even have to go past just training them. You had to go through some kind of process of learning how to ask the right questions to get to the right answers, kind of like an interviewer. Hmm. Uh, so what, what, what did you have to learn in order to pull some of these stories out of the people you were mentoring? I think learning that exactly that, your role is mentor. So even though this is a very intimate process and that you are touching upon 
possibly the most vulnerable spaces or topics that these people are covering is that you do have duty to lead is that you are asking guiding questions and it is not necessarily your right or privilege to impose your own opinion on this other person and what they choose to be sharing so that was something that I struggled a little bit with and one of our faculty mentors Nessa Chow was actually very helpful in that was reminding me of my place in being objective you know like you are guiding this associative journey you are not necessarily taking part in said journey as opposed to being a little bit removed from it that can appear cold but I think it is not cold at all if anything it's just remembering that this is their story this is not yours Carrie can you give me maybe some tips on what is taught to help pull these stories out of people yes there's a structure to it which the students learned they were really guided by the mentors that we brought in professionally at first and then in the examples of the stories that were told successfully in the first event I think it really clicked for them and in seeing those stories and understanding the it's like a sculpture almost you're building it from point A to point B to point C and understanding that the structural element of a good story you know where the suspense is and and when to release what kinds of information and then how to close the loop as Rosie put it earlier and then I think once we had the faculty on board which happened right after the first event we had some faculty come to the first event and go wow you know we want to join this once we got real professional storytellers in the room who might be doing it in written form but who could add their own interpretation of storytelling from whatever field they're in it really clicked the students have just gotten better and better and I think it's the experiential aspect the doing of this is something that you almost can't teach you can prepare them and you could try to set down some guidelines but in the doing of it these students are all so motivated and so engaged they're just grasping every lesson that can be learned from each story to the next one and building it up better and better right this is Rosie chiming in I think that that's absolutely true I can't echo enough what Carrie said the experiential aspect of it is both educational we've learned so much about our own emotional health about supporting other people about crafting a story but also it's such a community building aspect because now that all of us kind of senior team team members have learned about this associative journey of storytelling we'll sit around together um, on a Friday night and say okay like let's work on it like let's practice and so we'll all sit around and look at each other and says okay well who wants to go and then we'll start with a prompt and we'll all work on helping someone else piece out a story and it's something that as Carrie said is really difficult to teach but we've been bringing underclassmen into the fold we just expanded our team and added about 12 new members and it's really exciting to watch new people start to become really excited and learn this process along practice with this makes perfect practice yes, makes perfect exactly and respectfully i'm going to ask you to share your own story if you don't mind yes. uh the story that you have chosen to share with our audience right. non-judgment all right so rosie can you tell us a little bit about your story? Sure. Actually, don't even tell us. Just share Just it with share us. share it? Okay, here we go. So I spend a lot of my time daydreaming about the woods. As most of my friends will tell you, I am from Montana, and I'm obsessed with it. <laughs> I love New York, but I find when I'm overwhelmed by the stresses of college and city life and friends and relationships and homework, I just imagine myself back in the mountains and the trees at home 
at peace in the woods where it's quiet and no one's really asking anything of me and I just have the freedom to enjoy and be myself. But it's funny that I find the woods as a place of refuge because on the other hand, my largest fear is being eaten to death by a mountain lion, which is actually something that could happen to me at home. I often remind my friends who laugh. But I think the woods are such an interesting place and I think I don't feel fearful often in my life, but the first time I really ever felt deeply afraid of something was in the woods. So when I was young, I still lived in Wisconsin with my family. And when I was about eight years old, my dad and I decided to go visit my Uncle Fran's farm. So my Uncle Fran was from Chicago, but they had property not too far from where we lived. And sometimes my Uncle Fran and my cousins would come up and camp overnight in this yurt at the back of their property. And so my dad would drive us over and we'd go visit with them and have lots of fun with our cousins. So one night, probably in late fall, when I was maybe about eight years old, my dad and I decided to drive over to Uncle Fran's farm. And we pull off of the two-lane highway, we park in the gravel driveway, my dad hops out, we grab a flashlight and start walking. As we follow this path into the woods, I feel deeply unsettled. It's winter, it's nighttime, and I should not be here, as every book I've ever read at like age eight has taught me. But I'm with my dad, and everything's fine. So we're walking, and all of a sudden, I hear howling in the distance, which I'm sure is wolves. I look to my dad, panicked, and he looks at me and smiles and says, they're just coyotes, and turns off the flashlight. And I was too old to throw a tantrum, but too young to really feel safe without the flashlight. And I remember being so frightened that my dad seemed to be fully enjoying this wilderness in the middle of the night, and I was so terrified. But I knew that my dad would never let anything bad happen to me. So the howling continued, but as I let my eyes adjust, I saw in the moonlight the trees and the path. After what felt like an eternity, but was probably only five or ten minutes, we emerged into a clearing and I saw my uncle's yurt set up at the back of the property, a glow from lantern light within. And before I knew it, I was inside with my cousins, eating snacks, playing games, and it was like nothing had ever happened. But I think that was probably one of the first times in my life I felt deeply vulnerable. And I'm very thankful that I haven't felt that deep sense of primal fear many times in my life. It means that, you know, I have all my needs met, I'm safe, um, which is something not a lot of people can say. But this memory of being with my dad in the woods resurfaced this past weekend when uh, my boyfriend and I decided to go hiking up the Hudson Valley to de-stress from finals. So we took the Metro North up, we were wandering around this nature preserve, just running around, de-stressing, talking, and it was exactly what we both needed. Now at home, I always have to be out of the woods by dusk because that's when the mountain lions come out. So I'm always used to running out at nighttime, but we realized there were no natural predators, so we decided to hang around and make a campfire in the middle of the woods. And we were sitting around talking, enjoying the campfire when we started to hear something howling in the not-so-distant distance. And we were like, that was definitely just an owl, but it kept up. We're like, it's just an owl, but we'll, we'll, go, we'll go now. <laughs> and we decided to head back home. But I was thinking about it because this time I found myself much less frightened of the wolves in the woods, which would make sense because I'm no longer a second grader and I should know how to deal with these things. But it also made me think a lot about fear and how we start to handle fear differently as we get older. As a nine-year-old, wolves in the nighttime were the scariest thing I could possibly imagine. And now that I'm older, those things seem like fairy tales compared to some of the things I've watched loved ones go through. I've watched friends of mine struggle with mental health, with sexual assault, with the loss of a loved one. 
And every day as we're learning and paying attention to the news, we hear about more injustices and terrible things happening in our world. All of this on top of my own anxieties about whether that person liked me or misinterpreted my text or whether I picked the right major or what grad schools I should be looking at. I realize I'm not deeply afraid very often, but I'm almost always fearful. And that was a strange realization to come to. But I think while juggling how fear becomes more subtle and more complicated as you get older, it's no coincidence that the woods are still a place of refuge for me because it's a place where peace and fear coexist. And like the rest of your life, it's a place where you're asked to look at those things in tandem and not let the fear of the wolves keep you away from the woods. It's a time where you're supposed to embrace what it means to be a human being in all that vulnerability, no matter what might be howling in the distance. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Very insightful. Thank you. Very insightful. <laughs> so, Sally, you also have a story that you, you prepared for us. Yes, I do. Would you like to share that one? Sure. Well, we can start from pulling teeth. I can count on one hand the number of teeth I've lost on my own. The most memorable being the time I tied dental floss to one loose tooth and then the other to the bathroom door, knob, and, well, you know, I yanked it. I don't know really why I did that, but I've seen it on TV and it seemed cool and, well, I was also in the first grade. But the rest, the rest were pulled out. A lethal combination of dental insurance and an overeager orthodontist uh, does that to someone, I guess. So from grade one, I learned a lot of things as a result of Novocaine and gaps in my smile. The first thing is that the tooth fairy was my mom scratching her head at the end of my bed, thinking how much four premolars were worth, as, you know, a few months earlier, two bicuspids were about $10. So what were these teeth worth? This other thing that I learned was a little bit more important. I learned that people thought that I was brave. At least my first grade class thought so. And maybe there's something formulaic about attributing bravery to bloody gauze, sorry. But my mom thought so too. In a Target parking lot, or some equivalent, she called me Joan of Arc, and I warmed under the praise. Did I know who Joan of Arc was? No. But my older brother did, and he seemed to disagree with the comparison, if there's any nuance to a scrunched face and a shaking head, followed by a slammed car door. And now I think I agree. As I've grown older, I realize I have an issue with pride. I have a difficulty straying from the narrative that I and others have built for myself. This is a narrative of unwavering resilience, of infallibility, and of effectiveness. I'm struggling to process things in my life that hurt just a little bit more than pulled teeth. I'm struggling to find permission to show that I am affected and that I am far from the immovable force that people think that I am. And I don't feel very much like a 15th century heroine. But I've also found that I don't need to. I don't need to be Joan of Arc or Atlas or anyone else, and in fact, I can't. What I can be is patient. What I can be is a gardener. During the fall, I planted flower bulbs for my mom. She saw it as reparations for me leaving for school, and I saw it as the easier alternative to convincing my dad to do anything in the garden or get off the couch. I read the packages of the bulbs and made sure to dig deep enough, avoiding hard clay and quartz. Five inches, it says. Narcissus needs to be planted five inches deep. And hopefully in the spring, you'll have something to show for your care. Hopefully you'll have something good come from someplace deep. When I go home in a couple days, 
There won't be anything to see, but I can be patient. I can welcome growth. I can welcome it even when it comes in at a bad angle and correcting the mistake hurts for years, even when the orthodontist promised that it wouldn't. I can be patient with myself and accept growth as hiccuping steady before it isn't. I can be patient and acknowledge myself as a place for growth. Like running your tongue over the spot where a baby tooth used to be, waiting for a good thing buried deep. What is the legacy that you personally hope to leave for our story? So when people in the next hundred years are Fordham students who are involved in our story and you two are part of the makeup of this wonderful experience of expressing in therapy um, (laughs) through storytelling, what legacy do you personally want to leave? I think for me it's twofold. I think there's a practical side and kind of a personal side. On the practical side, um, our story has gotten so much attention that we are actually scaling up right now. We're now calling ourselves Social Impact Storytelling. So we have multiple branches. So one is our story, the live events that everyone loves will continue and we'll work on. And then before our seniors graduate, we want to soak up all their knowledge. And we're starting two other branches, one of which is curriculum research, which will be really focusing on those professor partnerships and how to integrate story storytelling into curriculum, how professors can help us learn more about storytelling. And then our third branch is something called narrative strategy, um, which is actually our consulting arm. So we had the opportunity to actually consult with a couple groups on and off campus. Um, Someone from the Equator Initiative at the UN Development Program actually reached out to us and said, we have all these great stories about the communities that we're covering, but no one's engaging with them. Can you consult us on how to tell our story better? And after that happened, we were like, well, this is great. This has impacts for the business world, for nonprofit. We've expanded up, so we have more ability to look at how storytelling really affects everything, which I think everyone on the team believes is storytelling is core to how you relate with everyone in your life. And creating that institutional structure will be something that hopefully after we all graduate continues to fill itself. Um, And then on a more personal level, I just think storytelling is so key to accompanying another person and really meeting and seeing them for who they are. And it's liberating for yourself. It's the best way to live your own life is to be aware of maybe your experiences and how they've affected you, what matters to you, what doesn't matter to you, and how that can inform your future choices and how you want to live your life. And then being honest about that with yourself allows you to enter such deep relationships with other people, which I think is something that we can't get enough of and is desperately needed in our world today. Do you have a favorite storyteller? Favorite storyteller? Or author? Or or author? writer. That's really difficult. One of my favorite writers is Barbara Kingsolver, um, who wrote the Poisonwood Bible, and she has lots of great kind of short stories that I think are very kind of like mini storytelling. Like they're not necessarily overtly personal, but they really hint at something that's kind of emotional or deep to the author. So I really like her. (laughs) Sally, what legacy would you like to leave? Um, I am a massive proponent of, I think, autonomy and having authority over your own stories and being able to individually and uniquely have the capacity and power to control your own narrative. And obviously it's something that's very personal to me is being able to, I guess, like carve your own path. But within our story, I just really want people to be able to understand that and like understand that from the get-go so that when they move forward, they understand that it's not about, you know, like, the people who are listening. It's not necessarily about even like your mentor and like their opinion. As long as you are doing this for yourself, then I think you're going to get someplace really great. Do you have a favorite writer? 
I read How to Write an Autobiographical Novel by Alexander Chi over the summer. And, oh boy, that destroyed me. <laughs> it was just like, I, I've gotten really into, I think, personal essays and anthologies of short stories more than I have full-length novels. And I was actually thinking about this the other day, was how, I guess, like, your taste and what you read changes as you grow older. So when I was younger, I read a lot of, like, fantasy books and, you know, like, those big, like, 13 book anthologies about like the same characters and you know like by book eight it's always like not as good as book one but you keep reading it because you know you have you're invested yeah but I feel like now I, I don't necessarily lean more towards fantasy or even like anything with a plot necessarily I just want to hear about people's experiences I'd like to thank my guest Rosie McCormick Sally Brander and Carrie Weiss I'd also like to thank my producer Andrew Millman you can like Fordham Conversations on Facebook, you can follow us on Twitter, and catch up on shows you've missed with our weekly podcast. For WFUV's Fordham Conversations, I'm Robin Shannon. <laughs>